Our church family is going through a journey of reading through the New Testament. Um, Let me start off in a verse that has not been in our assigned reading yet, and that is Romans chapter 15, verse 15. You can scroll there, turn there, open your Bibles there. Romans 15, 15, Paul writes this. He's, He's wrapping up his letter, and he does the same thing preachers do. You know when preachers say, and in conclusion, you know what that means, right? Another 20 minutes or so, 30 minutes. You know, it really doesn't mean anything. Paul does the same thing. He's like, I'm kind of winding things down. And then he goes on for like two chapters. But anyway, it's been a thing preachers have struggled with for thousands of years. But he says this. He says, I have written you boldly, boldly on some points. Which Paul's got a baseline of boldness that's pretty high. But even to my own understanding of boldness, there's been some moments in Romans that have been intense. And I think it's kind of funny because Paul's letters are bold. I mean, they're intense letters. I was thinking about it. It's the opposite of what happens when a Minnesotan person says something is spicy. You know what that means? It means it's not spicy at all, like period. It's the spiciness level of ketchup. And they're like, Woo-hoo, that's, a, that's a little intense for me. So when Paul says it's bold, you're like, whoa, buckle up. This stuff must be intense. This must be serious because Paul's already bold. So the basic outline of the book of Romans is this. I mean, this is just very broad, but he spends 11 chapters talking about why. He's giving us substance and doctrine and theology. You want to get into the practical stuff. You want to get into things that you can really put into practice. We want to jump right over the why, get into the what, which is chapters 12 through 15. And then, of course, he wraps up with a chapter of who. He's got all these names, and I'll point some things out that are pretty fascinating there. But have any of you ever tried to do something new that required at least a little bit of knowledge and skill, but neglected to learn how to do that thing? Yeah, I am, I am most definitely a leap before I look type of personality. I don't think there's been one time in my life that I started with the instructions. I usually end up back with the instructions or at least a YouTube video to help me figure out what's going on because I just trust a lot in my own intuition to figure something out. It can be a board game that I've never played before. I'm sure it'll come to me. Stick shift driving, how hard can it be, you know? Home repair, I'm sure it's fine. I don't need to call anybody who knows what they're doing and then there's an emergency and I gotta call somebody who really knows what they're doing. But it makes for an exciting life, uh, if not so much getting anything accomplished. But the thing I've noticed that if it doesn't work out quickly, if I don't figure it out quickly, I lose interest pretty quickly. I don't know if anybody else does that. I've noticed this in my kids, too, where they're wanting to learn a new skill, and if they don't master it really quickly, they can lose interest pretty quickly. This has been years ago, way before he was the mature 10-year-old that he is today, but Liam, a few years ago, wanted to learn how to hit a baseball. We went to the park, had a baseball, had uh, a baseball bat, and I was pitching it to him, and he was hitting about 50% of the pitches, something like that. But every one he missed, he would get a little worked up. He would get a little upset that he had missed. And, you know, I could see the discouragement building in him, the the frustration welling in him. I could see that he wanted to just cash it in. And I I, I sat down with him and I'm like, Liam, you got to understand that major league players, I mean, they hit about 30% of the pitches. You're hitting 50% of the pitches. That means that you're better than most major league players, right? I mean, that's that's what that means. I didn't, you know, but we, we all are this way. We're excited by the what, and we're not really interested in learning the mechanics of it. We want to naturally hit a home run, but we don't want to learn how to swing a bat. But without the why, 
The what, when it gets difficult, we want to give up. And that's why Paul spends most of the book of Romans talking about, here's the why of everything that I'm going to tell you to do, because the what can be difficult. So you need to understand the why. So he's built 11 chapters building this case. So we're going to focus on the exciting what part of the book of Romans today, because we talked about the why stuff last week. But there's a reason why the, that first section is more than twice as long. So if you have your Bibles, jump back into the beginning of chapter 12. He says, therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're not a dead animal on an altar intended to be burnt up in honor of God. We are living, breathing, moving, walking, spending money, talking sacrifices of God, and our lives need to be viewed in that way, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, or you could actually translate that Greek word logical. It's the same root as logical worship. It's the only logical thing you can do. If you understand the why, if you understand what God has done, this is the only logical outcome from all of this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Interesting. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, a new way of thinking. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's a compelling passage. Every section in there could be a whole sermon or a whole sermon series. Now, last week, we remember we talked about righteousness being a primarily a church word, but it's a really a human idea. Righteousness is to live in alignment with how God designed you to live. So it's not that we don't lie because lying's bad. We don't lie because we are people who are designed to care about the truth and integrity matters to us. And when we find ourselves beginning to spin lies, we find ourselves out of sync and, and dislocated with how God created us. So we don't say, I don't lie because lying's bad. I don't lie because that's not who I am. That's not who humans are. And that's why when we do begin to live in those ways that are contrary to the way we've been designed, we feel that dislocation. We feel like Something's out of sorts because we are living in a way out of sync with who we were designed to be. That's, that's unrighteous. So it's, a, it's an important idea. It's a lifestyle more than it is this idea of I try to do the right thing and I make sure I don't cheat on my taxes and I make sure the shopping cart goes back in the corral and however else we might define it. When we think of Christianity, I, there's one word that comes to mind, I'm sure, for all of us. When we think of Christianity, I'm sure all of us automatically think of rebel. Rebel, right? If you get into what Paul's getting at here, that's how you can encapsulate the idea that he's trying to communicate to his audience. That Christianity is supposed to be about rebellion against the status quo. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. Paul would argue later in the book of Ephesians, he would say, you are being manipulated. Whether you realize it or not, you are being manipulated. The language here gets so tricky because we would use the, the word culture, but not all culture is bad. But if we, could, if we could use the word culture to capture the idea of, of a, a way of thinking, a system that is out of alignment with God, then maybe that's what we could be getting at here. The authors of Scripture might use the word world to talk about that idea. But Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, he says, Our struggle is not against other human beings. 
It never has been. We put that on people, and then we fight against them, but it's never been about other human beings. Our struggle has always been about the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, this way of being that is disjointed with the way God has created us, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, you read a verse like that in Ephesians, and it sounds like metaphysical conspiracy theories. How are we even supposed to think about that idea? I mean, I know, and and I know, too, some of you are like, no, I am an independent-minded person. I am my own thinker. I do not fall prey to manipulation. I am not someone who can just easily take in messages of the culture of the world around me and then have them enter my brain. I don't. That's not me. That's not us. That's not who we are. Unrelated, can you, what was the, there was a movie called E.T. that came out in 1982, and there was a little girl named Drew Barrymore, and she, she got E.T. out, she lured him out of the closet using candy. Does anybody remember what brand of candy that was? Reese's Pieces. So as I was saying, us humans, we are not, we are not manipulated by messages that are subliminal. We're not built that way. We are smart thinkers. We are independent. We are aware of what the world is doing, and we know, and we can, we can overcome all of that, right? There's this movie I was thinking about the other day. It came out in the year 2000 with Tom Hanks. He was alone on an island. And there was just FedEx boxes, castaway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And didn't he, wasn't there something that he talked to? Wasn't, what was that? A volleyball. And the name of that volleyball was? Wilson. Isn't there a company that makes volleyballs that's name is? But I was going to say, as Christians, we don't let messages sink into our brain. We're not like that. We don't 40 years later remember the brand of a candy that someone paid to have put in a movie. The ways that sometimes messaging and marketing and branding circumvents our typical critical thinking filters and gets lodged in our brain because we are part of the world. And Paul says, hey, when it comes to Reese's Pieces or Wilson Volleyballs, I suppose who cares? But when it comes to more aversive, nefarious messages, do we think that we're not being assaulted by ideas that are out of sync with who God created us to be? We're fooling ourselves if we think we're not. We're fooling ourselves. When Christianity comes into conflict with what the authors of Scripture call the world, we could call it culture, we call it society, and those words aren't perfect because they don't, they, they don't perfectly divide these ideas, because there's lots about culture that is awesome, that's great, and that should be celebrated. But when Christianity comes into conflict with those social norms that are out of sync with God, the response Paul is calling for is rebellion, rebellion against conformity. That's what Paul is advocating for in Christians. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through just highlights of Romans 12, Romans 13, 14, and then middle of 15, just just pulling out some ideas of how Paul is encouraging us to rebel against social norms, against spiritual propaganda, against spiritual product placement. And, and how he highlights it in these, these passages. Let me give you what I think Paul would say are three outcomes to show that you have been manipulated. And here's what they are, at least three. The first one is divisive anger. Divisive anger. When you are subject to information, the result of which is divisive anger, particularly at a them, those people 
You have been, been manipulated by messages of the world, the device of anger, Romans 14, 10, 16, 17. Second one is fear-based, really any reaction. Anytime you make decisions primarily out of fear, you have been manipulated by the culture. I like the news. I cannot tell you, I should start tracking them. How many headlines are XYZ is happening? How afraid should you be? They're not even trying to like disguise that we want to appeal to your fear so that you will read this article. They're not even trying to hide that anymore. Anything that is fear-based, Romans 8.15, that we are not given a spirit of fear, that's not from God. And then the third one is redefining right and wrong by any standard that's not God's, Romans 8.3. And this, I think this is seen most starkly in what is celebrated or condemned by our culture. What is most celebrated by our culture, what is most condemned by our culture, or what are you condemned for not celebrating by our culture? That's how you see manipulation in the culture. And Christians, and unfortunately a lot of Christians do, they just play a role in this big ugly mess of the world. But there is an alternative way, and Paul is encouraging Christians to be rebellious. Christianity as rebellion, as not conforming to those patterns. So let's walk through what he had in mind. Romans 12, 3. Romans 12, 3, the very next verse. Very next verse. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Imagine, uh, imagine trying to work that into a Disney Pixar movie, if that was the message. Kids, you're great, but not that great. You're, you're pretty good, but not that good. Let's just, you know, let's, let's keep it realistic. Christianity is rebellious. It's different. That's a different message to say, hey, don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. Romans 12, 9 through 11 is, is depending on how you count, it's like 21 real quick commands, staccato-like commands, where he's just, he's just shooting one after another to his audience saying, this is what Christians do. Just about every single one of these requires some sort of counterintuitive idea to live out. They all run contrary to our default programming. They require rebellion. When he says things like, be patient in affliction, be patient in affliction. It's so much more fun to whine in affliction. Bless those who persecute you. No, thank you. I would rather curse them and think poorly of them. How about rejoice with those who rejoice? Somebody has good news. They got a new house. They got a new car. They got a promotion. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Eh, you know what? I'd rather be jealous. That feels a lot better in the moment. I, that's what I would rather do. I'd rather figure out how they didn't deserve it and how I should feel bad because I did. How about mourn with those who mourn? I would rather be glad that that's not me and I'm living in relative safety and comfort. That would be great. This is my favorite part of this. He says, do not be overcome by evil. And this is important because this isn't evil people. Do not be overcome by evil people. He's talking about evil acts, evil behavior. But overcome evil behavior with good behavior. Every superhero movie since, you know, Batman was on TV in the, the 60s, when he was wearing the skin-tight suit and it was kind of cheesy, campy Batman. Every superhero movie, so it's Batman, it could be Superman in the 80s, it could be, you know, all, all of them had the same basic plot line. And the plot line is this, and I, I like superhero movies, they're fun, they're enjoyable. But the same basic plot line is that the bad guy does something bad, right? 
And then the superhero, the good guy, does something bad to the bad guy. And the crowd cheers that he's beating up the bad guy. And then the bad guy gets even more upset and does something even badder to the world. And then the good guy does something. And if you watch some of these movies, by the end of the movie, like they're knocking over skyscrapers, fighting each other. I mean, think of the collateral damage happening in these movies. I mean, they're just, it's just violence and destruction. And then at the end of the movie, the good guy dominates the bad guy into submission and the good guy wins and rides off into the sunset. That's every, that's every movie. There's no movies that end with, I shouldn't say that because some of you are going to find one, but there's very few movies that end with the good guy not fighting back, taking on the insults, being spat upon, taking up their cross, walking up a hill and allowing themselves, even though they could dominate the enemy into submission, allowing themselves to be killed. That's just not the message of the way the world works. That's not how our culture thinks. And so Jesus overcame evil with good. And then we sit here and think, well, yeah, but the real way to overcome evil is to bomb evil out of existence. That's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to do it. And that's not the message of Scripture. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not the way Jesus changed the world. Christianity is rebellious. It's different. Look at what it says in verse 13.1. 13.1. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now that raises a lot of questions, not the least of which is that how is that being rebellious? That's the opposite of rebellious. Submission or subjection to the governing authorities is the opposite of being rebellious. Patrick, what, what do you mean? The favorite game to play in Bible college, if you've ever been to Bible college, it's really fun because you just sit around talking about the most impossible ethical scenarios. That's all you really do. And so you try to dream up these situations that you'll probably never have to experience, but then you try to ask yourself what would, or ask somebody else, what would be the right thing to do in this situation? A favorite, a classic, is what should a Christian do in Nazi Germany in 1939? That's like a classic. What should a Christian do? And in fact, Romans 13.1 was used to Christians to tell them, you got to go along with what's happening here. But it's always this question of, is, is it okay to lie? No, no, God hates lying. It says that very clearly. Okay, but what if you were hiding Jewish people from Nazi soldiers? Then is it okay to lie? And then there's all this argument and debate, and it's real fun, and it's stuff that we're never going to actually have to confront, hopefully ourselves. I say that, and who knows? But we love these. But, but there are a lot of examples of not Christians or believers not submitting to the government authorities in Scripture, right? Like the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh says, kill all the Hebrew baby boys, you know, and they're like, oh, we tried, but we got there too late. Sorry, Pharaoh. You know, that was, a, that was civil disobedience. They disobeyed Pharaoh, right? And that's, that's lauded as a heroic act. Or how about the wise men in the nativity story? Where Herod's like, hey, tell me where this king is. I want to come worship him, worship him to death too. And then the wise men were like, eh, let's go back a different route. Let's not tell that creepy king what's happening and let's just do our own. Let's do something else, right? That's a heroic thing, but that was disobeying the government authorities. Peter, in the book of Acts chapter 4, when they said, listen, all right, we'll let you go, but on one condition, you cannot speak any more of Jesus. And Peter said, famous line, we must obey God rather than men. And that's wonderful. That's great. So I don't think it's a very complex idea. It, but the way people like to use this passage is they like to use it as a smokescreen for what I want to do. 
I don't really want to pay taxes because I don't agree with the government. Okay, yeah, but you can't use your allegiance to God as a guise for your selfishness. You can't get pulled over by a police officer doing 80 and a 35 and be like, my allegiance is to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't observe speed limits, right? You can't, you know, that's not, that's not how that works. But when authorities genuinely come into conflict with God, you, you obey, you rebel, you obey, but you also have to rebel against the selfishness in yourself. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. This is so cool. This is, we could spend months here, and we're not going to. 1 Corinthians, which we're going to talk about next week, deals with this a little bit, but... Uh, Verse 1 says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Except one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. This is so good. Um, Some of you are really binary black or white thinkers, and you're just like, there is right and there is wrong, and there is no in between. And Paul seems to at least allow for some disputable matters. There's some places in which Christians can genuinely have some disagreement and some argument, right? And maybe if we were to go to God one day and we would say, what exactly is right in this situation? He could clear it all up for us. But there are some disputable matters. The basic point Paul is making is pretty clear. That we should be happy to give up our way for the sake of peace. That's a pretty rebellious idea for modern American individualistically minded Christians. That I should be happy to give something up that is right for the sake of peace with someone who disagrees with me. That's a rebellious idea to our modern sentiment. But this is is funny because the way that this passage has been applied is exactly opposite of what Paul says. See, what Paul said is he said, I should give up my thing for your sake. What we hear is you should give up your thing for my sake. We totally turned it upside down. Why? Because we're the gravitational pull of the center of the universe. And so everything should be by my definition and by my preferences and by my likes and my dislikes. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You should be willing to give those up for the sake of peace with someone else. It's like the story of the brothers and pancakes, you know, old, old preacher story. Mom's making them pancakes. She starts off making two pancakes. One pancake's bigger than the other pancake. So, of course, there's two brothers and both want the bigger pancake. And mom says, listen, boys, uh, Jesus would want the other person to have the larger pancake. And there's a moment of silence. Then one brother says to the other brother, okay, uh, why don't you be Jesus today? Right? That's, that's a, clearly a thinker. Uh, why, why? I mean, that's how we think about stuff. How can we interpret whatever Paul or whatever Jesus is saying so that it really benefits me? So I'm the interpretive principle in this particular passage. Generally speaking, I have heard, I have been taught, I, it's been just in the, in the religious atmosphere that the, the stronger person is the person who has more restrictions on their moral behavior. So if you have a longer list of things that you would not think of engaging in, that must mean you're really strong. For example, um, this is not a Church of Christ school, but there's a, there's a school that's really well known for having incredibly strict student guidelines. And uh, you can go online in March of 2022, and you can look at their student handbook and read through what their expectations are. And so I thought, oh, this would be an interesting thing because this is safe. I'm not going to step on anybody's toes. This is a safe example of how people can assume that strong is more restrictive. 
So here's some of their rules. It's pretty wild. Um, they have rules about how long facial hair can be. And, and I don't mean that it can't be too long. It also can't be too short. So there, there is a specific length for facial hair. Now, some of you are like, wait a second, but what if you decided to grow a beard in the middle of school? Well, they have a rule about that. You cannot. <laughs> you can only grow a beard on your Christmas break or over the summer. That's part of their rules. And if you think that's bad, you can't chew gum. Period. You were expecting some caveat right there. We can't chew gum. No, you cannot chew gum. Chewing gum is wrong, I guess. Uh, this is one of my favorites. People of different genders are assigned different stairwells. So only guy, guys can only use this stairwell. Girls can only use this stairwell. What happened was is some students got caught doing something and they said, okay, new rule. And now it's in their handbook for time and eternity. I don't know how that applies to elevators. I want to call somebody up and say, what about elevators? But the presumption is that these are strong Christians. They're strong because they've got so many restrictions on their behavior. But notice what Paul actually wrote in this passage. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Quite the slam on vegetarians in this passage here. Did you know that? It's pretty interesting, Paul. Now, there was some subtext. There's some cultural issues that are going on. And there's some people that assume these dietary restrictions made them better Christians. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not the way it is. You don't have to be a vegetarian to be a good Christian. And there's all kinds of things that you can unwind there. But this is really tricky. Notice, he says the person with more restrictions is the one whose faith is weak because their faith is in some measure in their restrictions. So it's not like, I'm saved by Jesus. It's say, I'm saved by Jesus and eating veggies only. That was the problem Paul's trying to address. Now, this is why this is really tricky, church, because faith, your faith, should result in sacrificial alterations to your daily life. There should be things that you do not do because you're a Christian. Not to garner favor with God, but because you have been saved by God. There, there are things you should not do, but your faith cannot be in those things. And it's such a tricky maneuver to walk because we get so confused about, well, I'm better than them because I don't do this X, Y, or Z. But more restrictive does not, by necessity, equal more faithful. In this case, their restrictions stemmed from weak faith. I, and I think it's because their trust was in the restriction. And so Paul says, hey, it's about faith, strong, weak faith. Now to add some confusion here, because that's what you want. Some, he talks about this in other letters he writes, because some people justify indulgence as evidence of spiritual freedom. Some people are, oh, I'm so enlightened, I could never restrict myself like those other unenlightened Christians. And so Paul says, no, 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 you cannot use liberty in Christ as this, this veil for selfishness. And that's a whole thing. We could talk about that for a while. But the strong, weak dichotomy is about faith. That's countercultural. That is rebellious. 
Romans 15 wraps up with some notes. He has some plans to go to Spain, and he wants their support. And so there's this whole thing about what he wants to do. And then you get into chapter 16, and it's really cool. It's all these names, and we might be tempted to skip over this, but don't skip over this. Uh, 16 verse 1 highlights this deacon named Phoebe, and it seems pretty clear that she was probably the one who brought the letter from Paul to Rome. And likely, because she's the one that was delivering it, she's probably the one reading it to the church. So it was probably Phoebe's voice that the church heard reading this letter out loud to the congregation from Paul. That's kind of the way he says, I commend. She, he's like, no, she's, she's with me. It's kind of interesting. Uh, verse 16 is the verse where churches of Christ anchor our idea that we need a church of Christ on our name. And can I poke a little fun at the churches of Christ for a second? I mean, I'm born and raised church of Christ. It's so funny that we're like, yes, church of Christ. But we only like one half of this verse. We don't do the other half, right? We're like big on one half of this verse, not so big on the other half. Because seriously, if I were to say, hey, we're going to put this verse into practice, and so you guys would be like, well, which part? <laughs> I'm all for part two, not so much for, for part one. I don't know about greeting one another with a holy, holy kiss or otherwise. I don't believe any kisses from some of you would be holy. <laughs> verse 22. And this is so cool, too, because you actually get a little wave from somebody else that's not Paul. He says, hey, hi, Tertius. Hello. He says, I wrote down this letter. I greet you. It's kind of cool. Little note. Little note from someone else. And that's the book of Romans. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Eleven chapters of why. Four chapters of what. One chapter of who. Let me wrap this up by making three observations. Once again, you cannot reduce any book of the Bible to three things or anything. But if Paul were trying to tweet the content of the book of Romans out, I think this is what he might say. He might say, number one, a relationship with God is a miracle and it should be celebrated constantly. It's a miracle. I think that's what the first 11 chapters are about. He's like, hey, you guys don't know how bad it was. The fact that God loves you, that's a miracle, right? Hey, you guys, you ever feel that about your wife sometimes where you're like, I don't get it. I don't know why she loves me. I'm surprised as anybody. That's what Paul's saying. You should be amazed because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The fact that God loves us and wants a relationship with us, miraculous should be celebrated all the time. In fact, Paul literally breaks out into song several times in the book of Romans. Did you know the book of Romans is a musical? He totally breaks out in a song. We don't know that because we don't understand that what he's quoting are lyrics to songs, but many sections of the letter are lyrics in the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms that Paul's quoting. I imagine he's probably singing because he knows the tune and we don't. Book of Romans is a musical. You heard it here, folks. Number two. There's no version of this relationship with God that doesn't involve deep, sacrificial, and let me add, difficult friendships within a church. So this is so important. There's no, let me make sure you heard me, because I think you heard me, but let me make sure. There's no relationship with God that doesn't involve connections, deep connections with the people in the chairs around you, in this room. We're not, we're not talking about, oh yeah, theoretically I get along with Christians worldwide. No, no, no. We're talking about people in this room. In fact, sometimes we have an easier time theoretically getting along with Christians in other parts of the world than we do with people who live in the same geographic area. There's no, that, that Paul is clear. There's no relationship to God 
without deep connection with the other Christians in these chairs, in these chairs. So the question is, what are you sacrificing to have relationships with the people in the room, right? We have, we have arranged our seating in this room so you can see one another. So you can look at one another. So when we're singing, you can see other people singing. When we're communing, you can see other people communing. That's why we've arranged this. We could arrange this way, and there's people who are like, we really should have everybody facing this way, and you up here. We could do that, but we would lose this. And so when you think about what have I sacrificed to have connections with people in the room, that's a pretty pointed question. Let me flip it and make it even more pointed. What, what are you doing that is making you sacrifice these relationships. That's even more pointed. What are you sacrificing these spiritual friendships for? By the way, people who have done the hard work of relationship building always find that the payoff way exceeds the investment. There's an investment, but the payoff way exceeds. And then number three thing Paul might say, he might say, we must constantly rebel against the external pressure and internal drift that tempts us to settle for anything less than how God designed us to live. That's like, we're, we're constantly on the escalator going the wrong way, and we're constantly having to fight our way up. That's what Paul would say. You have to constantly fight that. You have to constantly rebel. So we have to ask, what are we working for? What are we celebrating? What are we hoping for? What are we, what are we sacrificing for? 